Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Howdy, gang. Welcome down to the Dungeon Deep Dive. I was going to come up with like a like a Western thing, but I actually couldn't think of any Western things in the moment. So well, hell. Was it like a... the uh, could have done like a rodeo, whatever. Fucking, this is Dungeon Deep Dive. My name is Lachlan, and here is Atali. Hello. Hello. It's Atali. And here is uh, Grace. Yeehaw. But fucking, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Everyone at home, as you can obviously tell, because you're watching as well yes. in, mm-hmm. in the podcast, can tell that there is a fourth person at the table. Uwu, who is this? It's Maddie. Hey, Maddie. This is Maddie. Maddie's with us today. Hello, I am. Um, and before we get into anything, um, we'd just like to do a quick acknowledgement of country. The land on which we're recording today uh, is traditionally the lands of the Turrbal and Yagara people. Um, we would just like to acknowledge uh, elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Yep, they've always been places of, of teaching and learning and this, this land formerly held and still holds the longest continual peoples. So, yeah. Uh, and with that, today we're talking about salt. Yep, we're getting real salty up in here. Okay. Okay. Well, that's the only one we get for the whole episode. Oh, if anyone. Fuck, I wasted it. Oh, that, the fuck tax is back again. What? There's a fuck tax? There's not a fuck tax? I thought the fuck tax was us having an explicit tag on iTunes. <laughs> I thought, hold up, I thought we had an uwu tax. No one told me about the fuck tax. Yeah, I even said uwu in episodes because I've been saying fuck this whole time instead. Oh, God. Oh, God. Have I been paying the fuck tax for no reason? Yeah, who have you been. How, you, how much is the fuck tax? Because depending on how much the fuck tax is, I'll, I'll you know, turn it down. 10%, right? Yeah. G- GST. Yeah, it's like GST. 10% of what? Of Good the question. Fuck. The money you have. <laughs> <laughs> like in my wallet? Because no, not that's not... Mm. The money you can get. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, yeah. So, today we're going to talk about salt, which, I mean... I'll admit, doesn't sound very interesting. And it isn't. End of the episode. I, no, I'm kidding. I, like, mentioned to a few people that, you know, I was doing a bit of research on salt. And the response I got from a lot of people was, so why salt? Like, yeah. yeah but Is I'm, there a lot to talk about? But, I mean, it's surprisingly significant. Apparently, according to Bloody Reader's Digest. Ooh, oh, love a Reader's Digest. The word salary comes from the Latin sal for salt because it was such a valuable thing that sometimes you would pay soldiers in it and the like, which I think Tully has some things to say about. Yeah, um, we'll get back to that. If you want to li- listen in uh, a little bit, I'll touch back on that sort of near the end of what I talk about. There's, there's a, a little bit on it. Yeah, but I mean, it's it, it was historically an incredibly important thing. I mean, there's... Empires rose and fell on salt. It was the only way, pretty much, to preserve food. For I mean, 
literal millennia. I do want to like make a point. It was not just used to preserve food because I didn't really find a way to talk about this in like the notes that I got, mm. but Egyptians used salt in like huge quantities when mummifying their dead. Mm. Yeah. In, in addition to that, it was used for a lot of religious and wartime purposes. And it's also worth noting, it is very valuable part of the human diet. It is actually really important that we get enough salt, which is why we have a craving for salt in our foods. Reader's Digest has a thing to say about that. The average adult's body contains about 250 grams of sodium, which is about three or four uh, salt shakers full. I had two minute noodles for lunch today, so I actually have far more than that. Yeah, you have have five salt shakers. (laughs) That was a whole salt shaker. That I wouldn't even be surprised. They're very cheap and nasty noodles. I mean, my my, I get the really cheap and nasty noodles, and they just have pure sodium, not salt, mm-hmm. but just like actual pure so- sodium. Mm-hmm. It's like a it's snap, crackle, and pop in my uh, yeah, in my two minute noodles. It's salt, it's MSG, and it's dried carrot, like That's dumping it. pop rocks in your cereal. Exactly, <laughs> it just crackles a lot. <laughs> I do that uh, every night for a white noise machine before I go to bed. <laughs> I just get a big old bowl of cereal and I just pour them in there. Because as they slowly <laughs> sink through... Some people use whale noises. As they slowly sink through the cereal, as the cereal turns to mush, it's an effective, like, it's like a sand going through an hourglass. Oh. My favourite joke... Works as an alarm, too, because when the puffing stops, I wake up, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I lost track of this one, I think. The joke kind of got away with from you yeah, there. Sorry, what were you saying? No, I was going <laughs> to say one of my favourite jokes from Calvin and Hobbes is just the eating the sugar, the chocolate frosted sugar bombs or whatever and he's talking about how it's too sugary for him because he uses chocolate milk instead of regular milk. <laughs> <laughs> and the punchline of the whole thing is like, well, I used to use cola, but the bubbles went up my nose. And it was like, <laughs> kid, you need to like... Anyway, off topic. Once when I was a kid, I accidentally put orange juice into my wheat mix, And then I was like, well, my mum will probably be mad at me if she finds out I wasted this much orange juice. I should at least try it. And then oh. I took a bite and I was like, well, this fucking sucks. Today I accidentally <laughs> dipped. Just I got my wires crossed and accidentally dipped uh, two fries into my coffee. Um, Sorry, did you say today? Yes. Oh, it's only... Yeah, I, it's, it's been a week. I have oh, in no. the past been making a cup of soup and also had a glass of coke next to each other and accidentally poured soy sauce into my coca-cola so if we're talking about salt today soy sauce is it's up there it's up there it's up there yeah does uh, how how does it go with uh coke it doesn't Mm. it doesn't is the answer or or at least it shouldn't great surprise um so today so today, uh, I wanted to bring to you guys a little bit about the historical significance of salt as currency, because as, as Lachlan touched on earlier on, there is this persistent idea that salt was used to, to pay people, was used as currency for all sorts of things. People will often cite ancient Egypt in this. Sometimes they'll talk about Rome. And there is a persistent pop culture myth that salt was so valuable, it was even used as currency. I would posit that salt was more valuable, but very rarely used as actual currency. And I'll jump back to that. I'll start out on why it is significant, though, because it cannot be understated how important salt was to our world's growth as it stands. Now, the earliest known uh, European town, the oldest European town, uh, arguably one of the earliest prehistoric cities. It's also worth, just as a side note, if you're ever interested, check out the criteria you have to meet to be a prehistoric city because it's pretty cool. But this is this is near Pravadia in modern-day Bulgaria and this was flourishing about 4,700 BCE all the way out to 4,200 where it was believed it was destroyed by an earthquake. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but it was destroyed. It looks like it was destroyed by an earthquake. 
So this is around about 4,700 was when it built walls. It became a, a real functioning city. It only was said to have about like a population of up to 500 people. So mm. not big, but they had gold found all over the place. It su- suggests that there was in- enormous personal wealth found in the city. And it was pro- uh, providing, based on the evidence, it seems to be providing salt through the entire Balkans because they Ooh. were one of the first areas that developed, in, in Europe anyway, that developed the technology to dry out sea, uh, salt water into crystals. Oh, that's fun. That's I wouldn't have expected that, that would be the first way that we did it. Yeah. I, I would have expected that we stumbled across it and in so like mining or something. So that's interesting. Exactly. Oh, well, mining actually, it was less reliable than just distilling it. I guess that does make sense though, because the m- easiest way for you to, without the ability to like, excavate and stuff would Mm. stumble across salt in the wild would be like a salt water bed that had dried up exactly and that would probably be i'd imagine that's probably at least in part where the idea came from yeah and so this this bulgarian town or wasn't bulgaria at the time but this town in eastern europe for 500 years defended itself built walls built fortifications built moats with 500 people less than 500 people some estimates say as low as 350 people did all of that and had gold all throughout uh, personal wealth through the roof just because they had a thriving salt industry yeah that is a little description of like even in europe how crazy it was then there's also if you're looking at uh, at england if you look at towns with which at the end w-i-c-h i don't know is sometimes it's like one of the towns here is northwich or northwich i can never find any print there's no rule to go by i would imagine that if i if i'm not mistaken i think the name you're reading is norwich norwich yeah cool um again can't find any reliable rule to use to actually distinguish these because like every one of them has a different pronunciation it's a bit bonkers but if it's got w-i-c-h uh, that comes from wick meaning bay which means it was it was near a, a body of water but more specifically that refers to in most parts salt production now think of how many english towns have w-i-c-h at the end of them that means they were in some part producing salt for a lot of history yeah damn. And this goes back to Rome, the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire coming into the UK. So that's sort of how widespread it is and how important it was. It got in the name of the of the towns. There's the French gabelle, uh, which uh, is a word de- derived from the Italian gabella, meaning a duty. Historically, it was an indirect tax that was used on industrial commodities, things like sheets and bed sheets and wheat and spices and wine. But the from the 14th century onwards, it referred solely, solely to the crown's indirect tax on salt. And it is one of the most widely hated and grossly unequal taxes that the French uh, put in. <laughs> um, and that's saying something. This is this is France. I mean, this is the country that hated their royals so much they invented the guillotine. Yeah, but they it, w- it affected all citizens because they everyone needs salt. But because of their provincial differences in what they produce, things like bread, some, some people produce wine, some people produce bread, some people produce cheese, it was so unequal between areas because obviously things like the... The people who cured meats and the cheesemakers, they needed so much more salt than anyone who was producing wine. And so it was throwing these huge class differences in the amount that it taxed its citizens. But this was kept from the 14th century onwards. It was repealed in the French Revolution. It was then reinstated by Napoleon. It was then repealed and then reinstated in the Second uh, Republic. And then finally repealed after France's liberation from Nazi Germany. Yeah. (laughs) That is how long it was in use in France. Well, okay. This is this is also 
pretty indicative of the fucking crazy bullshit that revolutionary France was getting up to. Mm. Can I go on the slightest of tangents? Absolutely, go off. Okay, so when we were t- when I was researching flags, Grace, I've told you this story. <laughs> when I was researching flags, I got totally distracted because I I don't even remember why. Oh, it's because I was looking at like the feudal history of like where it all kind of began, and I was like, hmm, I wonder if there are any like proper principalities still in existence. Mm. So I looked into it, and there's one. It's called Andorra. And now, (laughs) the way that this worked was essentially a long, long time ago when France and Spain were at war with each other, Mm. uh, both of them really, really wanted Andorra. And so, uh, uh, I mean, I won't get into the complicated history of it, but essentially the resolution of the conflict was the Pope would pick a bishop and the French would pick a count, I think. And they would be the joint princes of Andorra, and that way the French and the Spanish wouldn't either wouldn't be able to do anything like massively anti the other in the place because the other one would be there to balance them out. And it was like, I guess, makes sense for feudalism, and it seemed to work for a while. But then Napoleon comes along, right? And the, they we're talking like the French Revolution, mm. and I was sitting there like, wait, hold on a second, a count, a principality? How is it still got a prince from France? Because the current French prime minister is the Prince of Andorra. Hang on, what? What? Uh, yeah, uh, the people that are left, the princes, still exist. It is now uh, uh, fucking Macron and a, just a, a Spanish bishop. Are the princes of this like little prov of of this like country? If I remember correctly, Andorra as a tourist attraction in Europe is famous for having next to no GST. So you can go in there and buy cheap shit. And the reason for that seems to be because the people that run it literally don't give a shit about it. They're not from there. They don't go there. They don't live there. They don't have anything to do with it. Literally the only reason that they're involved is so that the other doesn't use it as a reason to fight them. Like they're just there to balance each other out. Anyway, point being, the French Revolution comes along. The French government was like, hey, this sounds too feudal for our liking. You know the thing we're destroying? Let's get rid of this. So they gave it to Spain and then Spain used it as like this big like fuck the French campaign and so Napoleon had to come back. The people of Andorra like begged France. They were like, Napoleon, please bring the prince back. And so Napoleon had to reluctantly agree to be a prince while he was decapitating all the monarchs in France. This is spectacular. Oh yeah, because it just like went to shit for a while, and eventually they just like begged him. And then when yeah, when they divested all of the powers of the mo- of the monarchy in the prime minister, the prime minister just became the prince. The That's prime great. minister. It's, it's of nice to know. Revolutionary France is a prince. It's it's nice to know that nothing, anything I write in D and D will ever be as stupid as real world history. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. It's fucking whack um, as hell. Yeah, you can't make this shit up. No. <laughs> yeah, uh, so that's that's France. So yeah, pretty on par for their kind of whole situation at the time. Yeah. But I don't think unless you've looked into it, anyone can really think how important salt was to the formation of China. Just just as it stands, it was so key to its development as a nation and how the various dynasties went. So let me just the, the monopoly of salt production uh, the state monopoly specifically of salt production was a real driver of, of progress in China, both economic and scientific. So it led to some of its earliest discussions of direct taxes and indirect taxes. Here is a, a quote from a man uh, called Guan Zhong. 
If you are going to issue an order, I am going to collect head money upon all of you people, both adults and children. They would certainly remonstrate loudly and angrily against you. However, if you take firm control over the policy on salt, the people cannot manage to dodge it, even though you are going to take a profit of 100 times over. Basically, the key to that is if you tax people when they buy the salt, they can dodge it, they can get upset at you, they can, you know, they can revolt. If you tax the production and the right to sell salt, they can't dodge that in any way. They don't even know it in most cases. And so they, you can take as much as you want and they don't realise or they don't care or have no way to go up against it. And this basically, this was actually, there was a very early discourse on government control and taxation. There was two groups, the legalists. They argued the state should organise trade and realise the profit from it. So they would facilitate the production and the trade of salt and they would take the profit off it. The Confucian moralists argued that for the state to make profit was to steal from the people and undermine morality. The legalists won that and the salt was a major part of the revenue for China uh, up until the fall of the Han Dynasty in the second century. Wow. Yeah, it was huge. Salt taxes were so widespread because everyone needs salt that they could be set super low and still be one of the largest sources of income. Like uh, equivalent, pretty much second only to the land tax and even then rivaled it, which is huge because China has a lot of land too. To, to have your salt tax be bringing in almost as much income as your land tax is incredible. Yeah, it's, it sounds like a very similar strategy to the strategies of like the kind of European monarchies of taxing people through grain and stuff, mm. just taking something that is very essential to people's livelihoods, taking something that they spend a lot of their labour producing. And then if you just kind of take it as soon as it's produced... Yeah. Then, I mean, you can control the resources that go to everyone and you can ensure that everyone only has just enough that they need to continue working for you tomorrow. Yeah, and that, that pretty much uh, sums it up. They gathered rev- revenue by managing the production and the sales directly. This happened up until about the 8th century uh, C- uh, BCE, uh, where they started, they switched then to selling the rights to salt to merchants. So they would actually sell the rights to be a salt merchant and they made a huge amount of money doing this but it also resulted in the prevalence of a lot of salt trafficking because monopoly salt as it's called was a lot more expensive and the quality wasn't as good whereas smuggled salt a lot of bandits and warlords and sort of local yeah bandits and rebel leaders they thrived on salt smuggling because the monopoly salt was really expensive whereas if people bought off the smugglers it was cheap and of better quality this is crazy but like what what were they gonna do if you just like went down to the beach one day and stuck a tub of water on the stove like what what did they do about that a lot of china is very landlocked that's about that's fair that's about it yeah that's fair and that's why the bandits and the rebel leaders happened because they could actually do things like that Mm. china led the world in the technology of of doing this um yeah you've also got to remember that this is a period where a country's main exports or a group's main exports or whatever are pretty much always going to be exclusive to them or a handful of other people. Yeah. Like this is a time where, uh, for instance, I mean, if you if you look at our episode about uh, textiles, we talk about this, but this is a time where China still has a complete monopoly on the production of silk mm. because literally nobody else in the world knows that silkworms exist because the emperors refused to tell anyone for generations yeah like this is a time where places where like one place produces opium in the world like that's Mm. the sort of stuff that we're talking about there there would be no way for anyone to be anyone who wasn't given the information directly to really even know how to go about getting their own salt 
Exactly. It's it's a technology that's just being developed at this point in history or just being refined at this point in history. Mm, it seems obvious to us now, but if you don't understand any of the chemistry involved, like how would you guess any of it? Yeah, exactly. So this is where I come to sort of the scientific advancement that happened because the use of salt pans for extracting salt from seawater was pretty widespread. That was how it was done with the exception of those who mined salt. And even then that was less efficient unless you had developed high sort of a really uh, advanced mining equipment. But what they actually found was that the brine pools that they had been using initially to, to gather salt actually weren't just surface level, came from underground. And so this led to the development of early plumbing using bamboo pipes and leather valves to extract subterranean brine. Um, oh. And this is actually really interesting because it talks about leather valves. This was literally your one-way valve just developed using leather inside bamboo pipes. So it's like, it basically, it's one sort of valve and then on top of it is just a piece of leather that's secured in kind of in place so that if you put upwards pressure, you can push liquid up past it and the leather would move up and it, water, could, water could flow. And then the moment there's any downwards pressure, it creates a seal. Oh. And it can't travel further down. Mm. So this is really early valves are being developed just for the purpose of of uh, extracting under, underground salt. Because realistically, all you have to do is have two tubes, one of them bigger than the other, and have the piece of leather that's big enough to go through one and too big to go through the other so it can't be pushed back the other way. And then you're done. Yeah. And so this You is cure it long enough and it's basically just like, it's pretty s- solid, so it's not going to like decay too quickly yeah, yeah that sounds yeah and so they yeah. had these these early plumbing was developed because of salt this then became what we know as plumbing <laughs> it's so funny that we invented irrigation with to extract the most dehydrating like yeah mineral in the world it's crazy uh, but also this this didn't just draw up the brine this drew up natural gas which they also harvested to burn to then extract oh. the salt. So it was this incredible, they were getting both parts of the of the process from this one operation. It was That's fun. very, very well managed. Um, yes, yeah, so they got both the brine that they boiled and the gas to boil it at the same time. Yeah, which is absolutely nuts. And so this early scientific advancement, um, all, they also actually were known to sprinkle seawater on fields to filter through the soil, which meant that they ended up with uh, all the sediment would kind of be filtered away throughout the fields. And then what was left filtering through underground into these sort of pits is just salt water. The only thing remaining is the salt and the water. Hmm. So this is using early sedimentary filtration. Yeah, absolutely nutso. And the moral of the story is if you ever see a farm, get the biggest bag of salt you can find (laughs) and pour it all over all of the ground. The farmers will love it. <laughs> They'll love it. Just be like they did it in China. It made their crops good. I didn't listen to Tully finish the story. I just listened to the first half. It sounded chill. I went to go fuck up some fa- I mean, help some farms. <laughs> so I've talked a lot. I've now gone off for probably way too long about the economic value without talking about salt as currency at all. And there's a reason for that. There's sort of this myth of... Like there is the myth is that salary comes from the practice of paying Roman soldiers in salt. Now that comes from a sort of half truth. Are you about to just tell us that everything that Lachlan said at the start of the episode is completely wrong? Not yeah, you completely. were like, I'll circle no. back around to that and tell you that you're full of shit. Yeah. Oh, I, I. So it's, it, Lachlan phrased it correctly. It does come from salt. Salary does come from the word salt because salt was really valuable. But there is no little to no evidence to suggest that Roman soldiers were actually paid in salt. What it seems that salary was actually referring to is the payment that Roman soldiers would get 
for the purchasing of salt in order to then use it to salt the earth that they ransacked. Oh, interesting. Ah. Yes, there is some suggestion later on that some soldiers in some areas of the world, when the countries that they were fighting for were too poor to pay them, they would pay them in brine. Um, but again, little evidence to suggest that this was a form of currency. You had to buy your own salt to salt the earth? Well, the, the government would pay you to buy salt to salt the earth. Oh, okay, that was yeah. your that was your. It's like yeah. um, it's like when you, when you get like a uniform, a uniform yeah, allowance. Like a uniform. On your yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. it, that's exactly it. Yeah, the government's gonna... like the government's like, well, you can claim this salt back on your tax, but you do <laughs> have to buy the salt to begin with. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's that's <laughs> to fuck up those guys. <laughs> that's what it seems. Salary comes from is it's actually the payment that they were getting to purchase salt to ransack the earth. Well. See, I don't doubt that, but also it's difficult. And I mean, again, not to harp back too much to that episode, but mm. if you listen to the stuff I was talking about, about uh, the cloth currency in the textiles episode, we'll get back to very that, similar that thing. Bit. It's used as an, as an actual tradable commodity. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I'll let you finish that. So it's China. So China also does have, I'll circle back around. Salting the earth was a symbolic practice. It, it happened a lot. It established almost this folkloric sort of Significance. It happened a lot throughout the earth and finding specific times and places where it did happen is it's probably easier to find people who didn't do it at some point. But specifically, it had a lot of prevalence in Christianity. Specifically, and this comes back from the book of Judges. So um, the Hittite and Assyrian texts, they talk about spreading salt and weeds over destroyed cities. The book of Judges, however, says that Abimelech, uh, the judge of the Israelites, he, he sowed his own capital with salt after quelling a revolt against himself, which seems very strange. But the discussion around this seems to argue, depending on the translations of the text, from what I've seen, that everything likely to contaminate Israel religiously was destroyed. So its lands were salted so it couldn't grow crops. Uh, and it became more an ideological thing than a military thing. So there is talk that it was a military tactic used so they couldn't grow food, it seems like it's more ideological, more religious than anything else. It wasn't to quell a military uprising. It was to stop people from contaminating Israel. Yeah, more more a symbolic purification of the land than an actual uh, rendering fallow of it. Like, in the actual like, destruction of oh, the land. A little bit of both. Well, I mean, obviously, you pour a shit ton of salt all over the ground. It's not going to be good for it. But, but it, like, it's more a symbolic thing. Do you know why... Like, um, scientifically, do you know why salting the earth stops things growing? I would assume because it dehydrates it too much? More or less. Basically, plants, like humans, need salt mm. in certain quantities. Not probably as much as humans do, but, uh-huh. like, to a certain degree. I'm, I'm going to explain this really simplistically because I don't know the actual scientific terms. <laughs> but basically, plants need a certain amount of salt. And what happens is is that the the plant roots absorb water and nutrients from the ground because the concentration of those nutrients in the roots is less than the concentration of the of those nutrients and salt outside. Oh, it's an osmosis. So it's, an, it's an osmosis thing. So basically what happens is when you salt the earth, the, oh no. the, the concentration basically goes out of whack and the plants stop absorbing these nutrients and the salt and the water from the ground. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh no. no, if anything, the ground would start reabsorbing water from the plants. Yeah. Because the ground would be so dry. That's it. So basically it's the, I think oh I may no. have gotten it backwards, but basically it's like the concentration of 
stuff in one Aww. is higher than the concentration of stuff in the other. And if you salt the earth, then it balances them out and the plants stop oh, absorbing nutrients thing, and salt and water and things like that from the ground. Should add a fucking cell membrane, idiots. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Suck my nuts, plants. <laughs> I will say, I will say, I have Googled this extensively because I thought it was really fan, fa- uh, fascinating when I was doing my research. I will say it does not work with all plants. There are some plants, there are a lot of weeds who can tolerate Hell an yeah. exceedingly high, not that kind of weed. <laughs> um, maybe. I no, actually just, don't know. No, I'm just, I, I just, I'm into weeds. I think that they get a bad rap and I like dandelions and I'm so sick of everyone being there's like, a, that's a fucking ugly. There's a lot of different types of plants that can actually withstand a very high salt content in the ground or prefer it. I mean, there's actually, uh, the Assyrian texts talk about sowing salt and plants being weeds, specifically cress uh, or kudamu, because they grow in that scenario. And, They're and, the only thing that does. And that's it. That's why they salted the earth is... I mean, like, I mean, like, sure, they salted the earth because they knew that it stopped things growing. But scientifically, that's why. I just, I just yeah. wanted to like add my little because that's, no, that's really interesting to that. me. Is like scientifically, I was, I was like, why does that yeah. work? Is it just because salt kills things? I don't really. Yeah. No, it's and I mean, uh, they did the same thing that ideological purification by destruction of a traitor's land. Mm. Also in Spain, they uh, convicted traitors. Their lands were salted after. There, after they were, after their houses were burned and they were, their heads were displayed on pikes, their land was salted so nobody else could use it, because it was like this ideological purification of that land. Shouldn't have been a landlord. Yeah, fucking um, waste of fucking waste of space. But here is the last sort of last minute or so where I start talking about salt as currency. Um, in China, we're finally getting there. I know. I'm oh finally gosh. circling back around oh at the half hour mark. Because I'm a dickhead who talks for too long. Um, so the salt is a direct currency. Uh, the first sort of recognition of a standard unit of salt came from uh, the clay pots that they would carry the sort of salt paste in. Uh, this is where it was like dehydrated but not quite enough. So it was thicker than brine, but it still wasn't dry salt. And then Marco Polo actually... So these are standard measures called uh, Quixing Chi, I think. Am I... I'd never took Chinese. But they were sort of helmet-shaped vessels for transport. Later, Marco Polo, when he'd made his way over to China, talked about salt coins and a value of 80 coins to a saggio of gold. Now, I couldn't figure out what the fuck a saggio was worth, but at, eight, eight, uh, at a value of as low as 80 coins for a saggio of gold, but uh, merchants would sell them for a value up to only 40 for a saggio, depending on where. So they'd mark up the price to almost double. So this is where it takes sort of on a significance as currency in a similar way to the cloth currencies that we talked about in our textiles, where mm-hmm. it was more so a measure of value in a bartering market than it was an actual currency. Yeah, because, I mean, this is this is a time where you're talking about use value. You're not talking about exchange value. The reason that things are valuable in a barter system is because the things that are valuable in a barter system are the things that provide a service to people. Mm. And you've got to remember that this is a time where there isn't centralized currency in the sense that we know it because there is centralized currency. Like Rome has their coins, but you're not just trading in Roman coins. Mm. You're trading in whatever the person you're talking to will trade with you in. So that includes other currencies that you uh, have like a local value for. Like if it's something that that people you trade with from foreign places use a lot. Take that, Travel X. (laughs) 
it'll if you have like local artisan crafts, if you have that'll especially things that are like vital for survival, like clothing and textiles. If you have things like salt and spices and like clean water and booze and anything that you could use in your day to day life, was just as it, it was the same. Okay, the, a better way to think of it, I think, is you didn't have to convert any currencies. Every currency was available everywhere as long as you could prove that it was a currency. As long as you yeah. can convince that person that this is a real currency from an actual country and people do use this, you can probably get away with it. Yeah. And you giving someone a $50 t-shirt in exchange for $50 worth of goods is the same as giving them $50. $50 for those goods. Same as giving them the Canadian equivalent of $50. Same as giving yeah. them the $50 worth of spice. Yeah. And um, so now I lead to the only sort of record that I could find of salt being used definitively as a currency with no barter value, just trade value. Yeah, it's, it's just, um, it doesn't is, seem like you would want to do that. It's in Ethiopia. Um, so this dates back to about the 16th century. It's only certain parts of Ethiopia from what I've found. Uh, so as early as the 16th century, this has been reported and sort of still going as late as the 20th century. I'm not sure it is going anymore, but it is recorded that they would have black cakes of salt. No record as to why they were black, but it seems to be from handling or from something or other. But they were about a pound each. So a pound of salt in a little brick almost. And this was used uh, to trade for all sorts of things, notably for slaves. So a donkey's size in salt was the worth of a slave back in the 16th century, apparently. Okay. And this was actually noted as being measured and broken off accurately to give change. Like, they could actually, if you're buying small items, measure out how much of the brick that was worth, break it at that point, and give you change for it. Mm. Um, like handing a guy a hundo, and instead of he, he like gives you the $50 note change, he just cuts the note in half. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, to use the T-shirt metaphor, it'd be like if it was actually only worth... $35, so the guy cut off he the gives right you the sleeve back. and he gave it back to <laughs> oh, you. And he's like, no, no, actually, no. you can hold on to this. No, no, no it's a zip-off shorts. <gasps> yeah, it's like this. Like we finally leg. found a use for those. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm sure as hell not wearing them. Um, and so this actually wasn't used for consumption. consumption. The people of Ethiopia, even back as far as the 16th century, had white granular salt that was much easier to use and safer. So it was this black salt was only used as currency. And that is the only record that I could find of salt definitively used as a currency outside of a barter system. Hmm. And it was... N you couldn't find any evidence of its actual use in the sense of that you would use... Like, it was purely a coin. It was, it was purely, purely symbolic. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. And so that is that is the only... That I've found in all of my, like, searching, I can't find any other definitive... This was a currency outside a barter system. That's such a like fascinating intersection between the very like barter-based economy that was existing uh, in Africa, especially up until and to, to until the like ends of colonialism, and like the colonial at that point where the six we use the British pound or we use the fucking because this is the time where they're like buying off all the local currencies and shit, so that nobody will use them, so they'll use all of their like fucking fancy colonist money. Um, it's just funny to see, like, in this weird little intersection, like, well, I mean, I guess we have fucking salt. Yeah. What? Yeah. If you, you're you not going to take, like, shit that you can use? I guess take this salt. Yeah. Fucking well, whatever, dude. I if that's what you want, I we've got some. 
I tried. Uh, that was rough for me. Um, I wonder how many people lick their little salt coins because I'm thinking about it. And I had a near daily temptation to lick the salt lamp in <laughs> my old living room. So like, imagine just standing there and you're waiting in line to like get some dinner, and you're like, I wonder if it's still salty though. <laughs> I, I wonder. There and you go. You can, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's the reason I've never bought one of those. Yeah, because you'd lick it? Yeah. Yeah, they're really expensive and I'm afraid I'd just like, I'd be like, just one wouldn't kill me, right? And then I'd like get and myself it, electrocuted. And those die. are actually super bad for cats for that exact reason. Because they they'll lick it, they'll get addicted to it and the actual <gasps> type of salt that's in it is like super, super bad for cats because it's not just like regular salt. It's like... It's like pink salt. Or it's something. like something special. I really don't know the science of it. I'm not a scientist. I, I think Cats can get addicted to salt? Yeah, it, well, it's a particular, like, whatever it is. I think it's, it's like pink Himalayan salt, and well, it's just, they, they don't take out is. extra minerals and stuff. It, there's, like, it. something in it that cats will be like, well, it's not that they get addicted to... I guess they do get addicted to it. It's it's more just specifically that um like they'll go, ooh, this is nice, and then they'll just do it until it's too much. Until it's too much. And there's like stuff in the salt that's really bad for their brains. Yeah. Mm. And I don't know the actual science of it. So apparently it's generally got uh, less than 1% of sort of I- uh, calcium, iron, zinc, chromium, magnesium and, and, magnesium and sulfates. Uh, but some salt crystals are less, are not safe for food or industrial use without purification due to impurities. So I would assume the Himalayan salt lamps are using the salt you can't use without purification. Oh, that makes sense because they because the, I guess they'd want to keep it in a big chunk so they'd probably mm. be using like actual salt rocks and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fun. Mm. Don't let your cats lick salt lamps, yeah. I guess. Yeah, don't, don't do that. Anyway, uh, that's me going way <laughs> over time. Big chunky one, huh? Big chunky <laughs> one. There was a lot. Uh, they, yeah, it's just a page of Chinese history. <laughs> Jesus. Um, oh, God. I mean, just, just, just you fucking wait till you hear all the Chinese history article for the next episode. Oh, oh, fuck. No. Fuck. I can't no. wait. I did a bit of research into salt in more religious and mythological uses because I'm not actually a history buff. I am a mythology buff. Yes. Um, and to some extent that, that extends to you know Christian stories and myths and things like that. And they're really fascinating. And I just want to address... The elephant in the room before I start talking about the I'm gonna call I'm gonna use I'm gonna say pseudo magical uses for salt. Mm. We've all seen supernatural. We all know we all know how they use it. Yes. That you put salt on the door and ghosts and stuff can't come in and all they, of that they nonsense. Can't cross the line of salt or whatever. Yes. Some of that is correct, some of it isn't. We have all seen it. We've <laughs> and we all know. Just you fucking wait. They're nearly finished season 12 and I will be watching it. So through osmosis, you'll oh get enough. Oh my God. Babe, they they're nearly finished going? season 13. I literally will not. 13? 13. Isn't this the last one though? I don't. I don't know. Whatever they're on, they That's what finishing. they said about They've season five. got to be done soon, right? Yeah, they're finishing. I'm pretty sure the actors are like begging to be let out of their contracts at this point. Some of it is true. Some of it isn't. I will circle around to that in a bit because it's actually quite fascinating when you actually look at the real reason like where they got that particular nugget of, mm. of myth from. And I want to start with, for lack of a better anything else to talk about, I want to talk, talk about holy water. Excellent, let's do it. Because in kind of old Christian testament and very old Christian records and stuff like that, back in the, I, I think even before the days of the, the Holy Roman Empire, there was like, even in the Bible talking about Jesus and his mates, 
there was reference to things like salting the earth and he actually referred to his disciples as the salt of the earth. Mm. You know, he, he that, like phrases like that. Yeah. And a thing that I learned that I did not know before this is that apparently salt was and to a certain extent still is considered just as pure, so to speak, as holy water or silver. So in a lot of mythology where you use silver as a, it's a, you know, it's a pure mineral or pure metal rather, and it's used to defer evil spirits and things like that. Same with holy water. Salt was perceived the same way. Okay. So salt was seen as this kind of like, it is from the earth. It is this pure, I don't really know why it was perceived that way. I have a feeling it has something to do with a lot of the um, like life extending properties of it. It's used as a way to. Well, it was used as a way to, I mean, in early medicine it was used as a disinfectant not that they would call it exactly that but they would say people with fetid wounds things that were that were dying anything with necrosis or infection they would submerge them in the sea because it was believed that the sea's water would purify the wounds which in a way is correct salt water is used for exactly that even now which is interesting too when you're listing those sorts of like pure substances considering that silver has antibacterial properties as well which is why it's used a lot in like medicine for like tools and stuff Mm. and often for they were using it for a while for burn dressings because they thought that it would be good for the burns i mean it's also used in communion cups communion chalices are are (laughs) silver because they have antibacterial properties i do know that kind of offshoot here because of that like disinfectant and i want to say endurance i guess properties of like of like curing meats and things like that Mm -hmm. there was a certain like perception of it being used as a way to extend life. Egyptians used a particular type of salt called natron mm. to mummify their dead. It was used in like really big quantities, I think I mentioned earlier, but I, I do want to like as a side note that the Egyptians put a lot of whack shit in their dead. <laughs> and so I don't know no. that I can necessarily I don't know that I can necessarily attribute salt any special like notes here. Sorry, are you telling me that the ancient Egyptians had burial rituals, which would seem strange to us? No, totally. I guess I'm just saying that <laughs> I, I can't, I cannot uh, deliberately, as someone who knows nothing and did not really delve into the Egyptian side of things, I personally don't know of any specific religious context to the use yeah. of salt, except as a more scientific, this will preserve the meat for longer. Mm. Um, I imagine there were a lot of other things used for more religious, uh, spiritual contexts. I don't believe salt was one of them. <laughs> um, it's just interesting uh, to get a different an idea of the differences between table salt, as we talk about sodium chloride, and natron. Natron is a naturally occurring mixture of sodium carbonate decahydrate, uh, which has uh, two sodium atoms, one carbon atom, three oxygen atoms, with then ten... 10 things of water. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of all mixed together and about 17% sodium bicarbonate. So that's that. I don't know what exactly that means, but it is also sodium bicarbonate was also used as a way to purify things. Like it's soda ash was also used as a purification thing in some in some nations. Now, on that purification thing, I have learned a lot of holy water is salt water which I did not know until I was researching for this. So basically as salt was a precious commodity, as you, you kind of mentioned earlier, but um, it was, you know, considered very pure. Um, since the fourth century, salt has been used to make holy water and, 
and still is. Basically, it it can be used either in the production of holy water. Mm. It can be used on its own as in kind of old versions of exorcisms or baptisms, both of which have sort of fallen out of favour in more modern yeah. uh, churches, but not unheard of. Okay. Um, you know, a, a, a sprinkle of salt on the baby, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, when you, a when little you bit do of seasoning for Jesus. <laughs> doing the like the salt bay. Salt bay. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever form you use it in, it's basically it's intended to protect one from corruption of evil and sin. Specifically, I can find references to demonic influence and, as you mentioned earlier, sickness. Hmm. It's whether they knew that there was some preserving aspect of the salt or whether it was just that it was kind of that coincidence of, oh, you've washed yourself with salt water, you didn't get sick this year, like kind I mean, of thing. In if you think about it from a from a perspective of when possession and demonic influence and illness and sickness are all kind of lumped in the same bag, it makes sense that something that treats one treats the rest. Mm. It is interesting to me, and this is where I'm going to come back to the thing about Supernatural, because I found a, a kind of a discussion online about why the salt is used in such ways. It is a sacrament. The salt itself is not believed to have any kind of power of its own. It's not like a superstitious, like salt has these special powers because this. Mm. It is used as a symbolic, it's more about a focus through which, through which one uh, focuses their faith in Christ and God and things like that. Basically meaning that blessed salt, holy water, crucifixes, none of these have any self-contained power. These are the material components for your exorcism spell. These are the material components. It's not actually about the things having the power themselves, which is where we get the thing of um, people sprinkling lines of salt at their door to protect from evil spirits. It's not that the salt itself does anything. It's that the act of sprinkling a line of a pure substance, it could have been holy water, you could have a chain of silver on the door. The point is that it is a sacrament. It is the act of doing the thing and believing. Lamb's blood, oil. Correct. Yeah. Mm. It is all of those things. It's about the it's about the belief and the faith. The idea that it's the belief of the faith that protects you, not the thing itself. Yeah. Mm. I know that some vampire myths have this with like the crucifix. Yeah. In that, you know, you have to be of the faith for that crucifix ah. to protect you yeah because it's because it's this idea of like it's this idea that like a ritual is powerful but ritual is only powerful because it's how you prove to the divine that you're worth their protection essentially it's how you prove like you you're like i'm gonna go to all this effort to protect myself doing this religious thing to show god that, that i, I am a person protecting. who believes what this mm. says, so mm. I believe that putting salt on the ground will be useful. Thing. So there's a, there's a whole lot of I, I I did find a lot of like how to make holy water online, which some of them say that you have to be an ordained priest to make it. Some of them don't. This is the internet, so mm-hmm. I'm willing to more believe that it is the ordained priests who make it. But the idea is that the act of sprinkling the salt in the shape of the cross is in the water is what like helps it. In addition to a number of other things. Uh, rites that they speak so on and so forth but it's it's the salt is a a purifier it's like silver but much easier to sprinkle on things mm. i i had heard recently that there is a belief in at least some 
some Christian people who that if you mix holy water with regular water uh, and you like make sure that the ratio is like to a certain point, mm. it's still all holy water. I think which, it's like up to a certain ratio. Yeah, yeah it's like it's like cordial. It, it has to be like one yes. part in five or something. And I and that kind of makes sense listening to that because I would imagine the way you would tell is you would taste it and if the water's not salty anymore you'd be like well this is fucking bull- this is fucking normal water not, fuck you it's not holy enough this is normal water this doesn't taste this doesn't taste like god at all <laughs> <laughs> right and so as we know this is this is a D&D podcast right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. holy water literally is used Constantly. in the rules as a, as a defense against things like devils demons uh, undead all sorts oh. of things Having a having characters that don't believe in a god not be able to make holy water, and this is where the we'll we'll come back to like actual ideas of like how to use some of this stuff in D anD D, but like it's where do you guys know where the myth of throwing salt over the shoulder comes from? When uh, you spill salt on a table, you throw salt over your shoulder to mm, get rid of the bad luck. No mm. idea where that comes from. It is related to the same kind of belief. Of, of, of Christian myths. Basically, it was a... Because it was so costly, it was so... Highly valued. Highly valued. Mm. Sorry, I had a mind blank there. It was appropriate to use salt as kind of an offering to God, as a a, a covenant of salt is what I've got it here as. I guess because um, once you've thrown it over your shoulder, you can't use it. This was... It was just a, a donation. <laughs> not, that one's for you, God. Not, not quite yet. Huh? No. It was used in sacrifices and for the accompanying of the sacrificial meal. This is where we come into it. So it was used for almost 4,000 years to preserve meat from deterioration. It became a symbol of preservation and spiritual uh, incorruptibility. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It preserves things. It keeps away sickness and evil and demons. We must have it at our meals on our food. Uh, and I... I think it's important to flag that the reason that big part that it would be associated with black magic as much as it would be associated with disease is because this is an era where they're not distinguishing between the two. So if something can stop your food or your corpses or your whatever from going rotten, then it's also stopping you from the devil because whatever's causing rot is the devil. I'm thinking about it also. I'm pretty sure someone spilt salt at the Last Supper. I'm pretty Judas sure that Iscariot. was Iscariot. Absolutely, yes. Judas Iscariot. Now, this myth is from before that painting was painted. Something to note. Yeah. So, however, because it was one of these things, it is a symbol of uh, friendship and hospitality. You have it at a meal as a as a part of your like a, a symbol of good friendship and offering salt as a seasoning at your meal is basically kind of in a very weird way, kind of putting it on the table and saying, I. You know, I bless you with good health and long life kind of thing. It became a symbol of friendship. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the ancient equivalent of being willing to give your friends the shirt off your back. You need that stuff. That's exactly right. It became a kind of social faux pas to spill salt at meals. It's essentially the following on with that kind of metaphor. It's kind of like spitting on that friendship to knock the salt over and be like, "Puh, like I don't, I don't need you." So it's so sorry. Is the conclusion? I don't want to get ahead of you too much. No, no, no. There are two more steps here because this is how this myth came about. What's your theory? Okay, my theory at this point is that the reason you throw it over your shoulder is because it's rude to the devil and he won't want to talk to you. You are so close. Oh my God. You are so close. So dumb. So after it became such a thing that spilling the salt at meals 
was considered a social faux pas. It was spitting on the friendship. Eventually, it came to the people came to this notion that no reasonable person would do it on purpose. No one would spill salt of their own volition. That's a crazy thing to do. We're all reasonable people here. We're all, you know, God-fearing Christians. I mean, you can't pick salt back up. Right. So the notion came to be that it must have been the devil that bumped your arm. (laughs) The devil must have been standing behind you, knocked your arm, and that's why you knocked over the salt. Ah, Because you tried to reach for something else and the devil went, and shook you and you knocked the salt over. Something saved you. That's it. And eventually that just becomes the ritual. And so in, a, in theory, the devil's standing behind you, who's bumping your arm, where are you throwing the salt? Over your shoulder, in the devil's face. Into the devil's face. <laughs> yeah, you just throw it at him. It's, really, it's, a, it's just a shitty thing to do. The devil's not going to want to hang it's out there. It's such a circuitous route to this idea that if you spill salt, you've got to throw it over your shoulder. But that's exactly where it comes from. See, this is why I love this shit. This yeah. is why I do this show. Because this is, the so- this is the fucking stuff that you find out. You're like, oh, well, this normal thing that, we t- that is normal and is totally obvious how it came about. Let's talk about that. And you look at it and it's like, oh, no. It was just 500 crazy people lied for forever about everything. And then they just kind of pretended that this is what salt was. Because this is a story they heard. And they were like, well, my story is cooler. Yeah, tell my story now. People made up some whack shit about what salt at a table means and just kind of ran with it. I just love, and it's interesting because, and I think, because a lot of this stuff comes about through, uh, at least a, a lot of this, a lot of like the mythology of this stuff comes about kind of through like the medieval era and the Middle Ages, which is interesting because a big part of that I discovered recently is just because. Middle English and Old English were written in such a way that it was it kind of almost implicitly encouraged for you to make up your own stories based on other people's stories because they would leave intentional gaps and things. So it was literally just because like their language was fucking dumb. Everyone got to make up their own stories all the time. So we have our obviously like salt is holy and pure and therefore it'll keep the devil off you, mm. right? It'll keep evil spirits out. It'll keep bad luck away. It'll keep the devil off you. And that's where we get like salt being used as a protective from evil spirits. By extension, it was then used in the Salem witch trials. And this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard because obviously the the idea back then was that witches had made some kind of pact with the devil, mm-hmm. right? And therefore were evil. Mm-hmm. One of the tests that they used to mm-hmm. determine if one was a witch was they would tie you down and they would rub salt on your skin with under the idea that if you were a witch, you were therefore evil and the salt would burn you and it would How hurt you. How hard did they rub this salt though? Because I imagine you just rub hard enough and my skin's going to get red just from the pressure, so just if from the, I- the friction. So the idea was they would rub salt into your skin uh. and if you bled, you were a witch. Oh, Is that where rubbing salt in the wounds comes from? Uh, no, slightly different. Although I imagine it probably has something connected to it. I would be so funny if that was the first time anyone had ever thought to do that to anyone ever. But that's it. It's it's the it's the rubbing coarse salt into someone's skin. Do they bleed? They're a witch. Jesus (laughs) Christ. So it's literally just up to how rough were you when you did this? That's it, right? I imagine if they think you're a witch Pretty they're rough. Not they're not. They're it. not going to be. Yeah, they're not going to be nice to you. So it's just going to be confirmation bias. The yeah, whole thing it. will be confirmation bias. I mean, you've. I mean, that's the Salem that's, witch trials. That's the Salem yeah. witch trials. That's how it worked. What have you found, Lachlan? Huh? Oh, nothing. I was just thinking about how I guess Giles Corey just cut the worst kind of rocks, huh? 
Okay. It just sucks. You know, do you know Giles Corey? No. Giles Corey was the guy in the Southern Witch Trials that was uh, killed by pressing, which was where they would try to torture a confession out of you because he was one of the few oh people that refused God. to say either way. He wouldn't say if he was guilty or not because he was like, this is a sham. I'm not going to fucking engage with this. And they kept putting rocks on his chest to be like, to like crush him, to be like, confess, confess, oh. confess. Should have chosen the salt. His famous last words, well, uh, they were like, con- yeah. fucking confess to this crime. And he just said, more weight. Yeah. Yes. It's, yes. It's hardcore. He's it's like the, the coolest, coolest thing. person. My favorite famous last words is, and I couldn't tell you who it is, but someone will know, is someone very famous. They they were very sick and in hospital, and the nurse said, "You know, he's actually he's actually improving." <laughs> and his last words were, <laughs> "On the, the contrary. contrary," and then died. I, oh, yeah, it's, I don't. It's, it's like someone really English famous author or something. Yeah, I can't. I don't know who it is, but. It, it's it's not it's not Dickens, but it's like someone of a similar level of of notoriety and fame. Yeah, it's like a Dickens contemporary, a, a Dickens contemporary, something yeah. like someone like that. Uh, the last words of Henrik Ibsen, a Norwegian playwright. Oh, it's Ibsen. Oh, there Ibsen. you go. There you go. I do know that, sound, that sounds like Ibsen. <laughs> I do know that the uh, Einstein's last words were never recorded because he said them to a nurse that didn't speak German. <laughs> <laughs> So we don't know what the fuck that fucker said, but I bet it was important. Um, Oops. So all of these myths of like salt being used as a ward against evil all have their origins in Christianity. Only ones I can find that are not the case. You know, so witches were assumed to have covenant with the devil and and the devil was, you know, hated salt because it was pure and it was connected to God. The ones that I can find that are not connected to that in any way, shape or form are vampires and fairies for exactly the same reason. (laughs) Hmm. Because both of them have some kind of myth that if you spill salt, they are compelled to count the grains. Mm. And I cannot find any source for where that story came from and why it's specifically vampires and fairies. Well, what's a vampire but a goth fairy? (laughs) Oh. Um, I know some people who are going to be very upset that you've just said that. (laughs) I couldn't tell you where the myth came from, but I can give you a pretty good guess as to why it's vampires and fairies. Yeah. Probably because uh, a lot of the cultures that these myths originated from didn't use the same terminology for creatures that were used in the languages that uh, ended up adopting those myths and popularizing them into the modern era. And so, like, imperial ancient groups, like the Romans, for instance, had this policy of anytime we hear a myth from somewhere else, we will reinterpret it and work out, like, where this is it one of ours yeah. and if not what's the new name what part of roman law are you trying to explain so like they found like the death the the, the god of death and they were like oh well this is our god of death for instance so probably what happened was they were like it was some culture that was like these are like fairy-esque creatures that eat people or drain blood or do something along those lines and were just kind of like nefarious spirits or demons or something. And someone that was then like, in that's the, vampires. Yeah, that then when all the languages like smash together. It does interest me that similarly vampires and fairies also both seem to have some kind of mythos around entering the home. Yeah, about It's not politeness. the same. It's not the same myth. Like there's no. something about like fairies coming into your home... Uh, I don't. I don't actually yeah. know this one, but I know that vampires can't come in unless they're invited, and there's like a whole thing with that. So it is interesting how much crossover there is with vampires and fairies. I think with fairies, it's they can come in, 
but they can't do anything to you and they can't make themselves at home unless you accept their offering. They'll, like, give you yeah. a gift if they come in and, and you have to, like, accept their inv- – not invitation, I guess, their request to be a part of your life. Otherwise, mm. they'll just fuck off. If you ignore them, they'll leave. And, I mean, I did a little bit of speculation on what this could be. Uh, it's wild speculation with no grounding in any actual myth, but about why vampires would have this exact same thing, which I drew from vampire thralls being a slave to their owner's com- their master's compulsions. So if they were compelled to be polite, then they couldn't physically enter the home unless they were invited, something like that. It's like being bound to a certain code. Mm. Plus, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I And I was, all I was going to say is that the, the, thing with the fairies and vampire myths is that specifically with salt fairies i've only ever found it mentioned of fairies spilling salt they have to count the grains vampires i've heard it's rice it's grains rice, yeah. grain pebbles rocks. just like vampires will count you could throw tennis balls it's anything just that they're easier to count yeah some variants some For- variants of the myth even specifically say throw anything down on the ground one tennis ball what i've just oh, sorry oh, oh. Yeah. i've never considered that that's where count von count mm. comes from yeah, yeah. that's what that and is I'm, I'm i'm actually just like Sort of having a time right now because I don't. Good, I right? didn't. What? We had oh this, my god! We, we had the same revelation. We had this same moment. We did the vampires episode. I totally get it. I I think it's plus. I would imagine a lot of that stuff because it all came from like fables and stuff as well in like the early days. So probably it, like it would make sense that a bunch of like people kind of living in like small communities out in the woods would tell their children, "Don't just walk into people's houses. You should ask to go in because I don't know. They'll think you're a monster." Fucking sure. Maybe. Because I'm sure there were a bunch of kids that were probably getting like killed and kidnapped and shit just because like at the time, yeah, at the time you didn't have like etiquette about what you could and couldn't do in people's houses. Hmm. So people could just wander in. My last point on the mythology aspect of this is hmm. that it, kind of another crossover with kind of the two of the myths that we've already talked about, witches and fairies. Again, both with the same rule, but doesn't seem to be any connection between the two of them either don't or can't eat salt. Now, I assume that the witch thing is because of that belief that they have that connection to the devil. Mm. You know, we've covered that bit. Fairies seems to be, maybe it has to do with they have to count each of the grains, but basically all the the things I can find suggest that fairies do not eat uh, salt. All of their food is unsalted, and that's if you if a human was to eat unsalted fairy food, that's when they have the spell placed on them. That's when they can't leave. There is a okay. there is a part of that myth that always gets left out, which is if a human carries around their own salt, like in a bit a bit in your pocket or in a little salt shaker, you put salt on that fairy food before you eat it, you're fine. I would imagine that it comes pulls. from the same place. Just that idea of like this is a purification thing. This is like a and the because like quite I mean, likely fairy myths were when Christianity came along pretty well absorbed under the banner of like witchcraft in general because mm. like early Christians weren't going to admit that there were people other than like creatures other than witches that had inherent magic like that's cr- that would be a crazy admission oh, that'd be crazy so, so I'd imagine it was just because like either fairies were demons or fairies were witches probably at a certain point mm. I don't know I don't know that would be my the, best guess yeah I mean like I can only imagine that there's probably a, a lot of different religions have different ideas on different substances and salt ha- has over a lot of them really does come into that kind of preservation thing and protection as well mm. as far as like connections between fairies and vampires and witches specifically yeah I, uh, yeah I mean that whole history is convoluted we've tried to unravel that many a time mm. 
Uh, yeah, it's me. I just thought it'd be fun to tell you guys I actually have, you know, those little tiny things of bubbles that you get at birthday parties, the li- mm. little tiny ones. I have one of those that's full of holy water that a friend's mum gave me before my QCA test because uh, I went over to her house and she had this like big tub of holy water and that was the only thing that she could find that was like water tight and she gave it to all of us girls that were over for a study day. So I have <laughs> a little thing of bubbles, fun. but it doesn't have the bubbles in it. It has holy water in it. So Do you reckon it would still be holy? if you put like a drop of dish soap in there and like really hope holy, so. holy really bubbles hope so. i'm just like sitting in the back of my exams like blowing bubbles like i'm blessing i'm blessing you you're all good now <laughs> one hits the teacher in the head and they start convulsing oh like my god i wouldn't be surprised as, honestly some of the teachers i've had as a teacher in training i can i can confirm yeah? it does involve unholy rituals i wouldn't even be shocked yeah okay so look oh was that not your thing i assumed that was your That's research it. good night guys see you later <laughs> no look mine is salty it is not salt everyone said we're going to talk about salt and i said i don't know shit about salt so i'm so you picked soy sauce close almost soy sauce i'm doing tears the soy sauce of the body (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's why i make it a habit to cry over my uh my noodles it adds an extra like umami see i also cry over my noodles but generally it's it's not deliberate it's just you know yeah i mean don't give her too much credit she cries over every other meal too I thought we weren't going to talk about that tonight. Shouldn't uh, have brought it up. <laughs> oh, we're getting a demonstration. God, you I'm sorry. I have I have not been helping this podcast be concise. <laughs> sorry, gang. Okay, so tears have a similar structure to saliva. Basically the same thing. Saliva is a bit tasty. I hate it. I, oh. I actually hate spit. I, I'm one of those people where it's like, I can deal with anything. I can deal with blood, puke. I can deal with poo. I can deal with just about any human. Not the, not a fan? I hate spit. I don't know what it is. It, I just hate it. Yeah. Well, tears and spit, same thing. Spit's just a bit chunkier. Bad. So basically it's mostly. I hate chunkier. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, more viscous. That's not better. That's not better. Okay, so it's mostly water, obviously. It's got salt, obviously. Fatty oils and over 1,500 different proteins. Which is this? Tears. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Just making sure. Fun fact, uh, sodium bicarbonate, Mm. the one you were talking about, that's the tear one. Ah, bicarb soda. Yeah, it's in your eyes. So what, pour in a little bit of vinegar little and vinegar? you get a little, little volcano. Yeah. That's a fun science experiment Tully. to do for your friends. <laughs> your eye just erupts out of your face. <laughs> I, I dare you to put vinegar in your eyes. We'll see how it goes. Only a little bit. There's only a little bit of sodium people, bicarbonate um, in your eyes. So the recording only... studio is in an apartment with a kitchen right next to us. We have so... vinegar almost definitely. Okay, so there's... One second. Oh no, Tully. Oh my god. Tully has half an eye now because he did the vinegar thing. It was pretty fucked up. It was really grisly. It erupted right out of my face. The audio was unusable. There's too much screaming. I tried to put it on Instagram, but we it did get deleted by the company. So if you just search, if you work out the hidden phrases to search on LiveLeak, you can find the video. He's got a cool eye patch now, like Deathstroke. Well. So next week, we're going to do pirates again. Well, thanks to Tully's beautiful demonstration, we also have a lot of examples of the different types of tears. Because Tully definitely cried all, all of, of them. these. Yeah. Scientifically, there's three. They break them down to three different types of tears. You've got basal tears. They are always in your eyes. That's just your eyes wet. B-A-S-A-L? Yeah. Yes. I know that means base level, but I heard 
uh, the American pronunciation of basil, basil? tears. Yeah, do you want some, some herbaceous tears? Tasty. Tears are stored <laughs> in the eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> Eyes in brackets, if that wasn't clear. That's parentheses. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, I got it. You've got reflex tears. These are basically the tears you get when your eyes are exposed to like irritants. Uh, so like smoke, onion, vinegar, all that sort of fun stuff. And then you've got emotional tears. Which actually, I read a study recently, that's uh, mostly just piss. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I don't know what. Was, Someone lied to you. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to do a squirting joke was the joke there. It was like a, because it was like a. I don't know if that was clear. Yeah. <laughs> well, because it was... It made sense in my head. Yes. Yeah, um, I'm squirting's glad it made pierce. sense somewhere. <laughs> squirting's just emotional tears. Exactly. That's the thing I was going <laughs> for. Just, yeah. Maybe that was it's too much of an same, abstraction. It's all the same thing. Okay, so basically the emotional tears do also contain like protein-based hormones, including the neurotransmitter leucine encephaline, which is a... <laughs> essential, it sounds funny, but it's a painkiller. Basically, it's like the natural painkiller your body... You know when you go into shock and you can't feel pain? No, but go on. Anyway, your body makes a bunch of stuff that is like blocks off the pain to your brain and then also like dulls your senses. I mean, I know about it. I've just never experienced it. Yeah, so basically this is like the neurotransmitter, the the protein that like triggers that neurotransmitter to tell your body to be like, okay, it's not that bad, babe. Wow. Uh, So when you're crying, emotional tears, you'll get a little bit numb because your brain's like, we'll, we'll... Turn it down just a little bit for you. So if emotional tears are from big emotions and the second one... The second one is reflex tears. Reflex tears are from... onions and smoke and irritants. Irritants and things like that. Where do you get basil tears from? That's just the water in your eyes. That's just... That's just always in there. That's just like the... Yeah, you know when you poke your eye and it's wet? That's the one that's stored in the balls. So they're not... Yuck, please stop. (laughs) I actually tweeted that. It's not like like a tear and you know... I don't know. Unless you're like looking at a screen for a really long time, your eyes get a bit watery. Mm. It's like that sort of thing. It's like, it's just the liquid that is always in your eyes. Because I always use, I usually just associate tears with like the stuff that comes out mm. when you're injured or emotion, emotional tears. It would be injured. Injured too. as well. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Wait, sorry. So do you cry when you're hurt just because you're really sad about being hurt? Is that literally all it is? I mean, I mean, often like, you know, when little kids like cry because of like the shock. It's just like the surprise, the shock, the feeling of it. So I similar to like an, ad- like an adrenaline response. Yeah. yeah. It's I like an emotional thing. Unless, of course, you're crying because your eye got injured, in which case it'd be a reflex tear because your eye's trying to wash out the irritant. I guess I just expected just that there really would be sad like... that you stabbed me in the eye. So, like a, a little bit more of a, like an association between like crying and pain specifically. Mm-hmm. But no, it just, it just sucks to be hurt, I guess. Yeah. You don't like it. That's fair. Probably also helps with that natural painkiller, that um, neurotransmitter. That's true. Um, probably helps with that. So I got to this topic about tears and salt because I don't know. It's 2020. I don't know how many of you guys are still on Tumblr. But I am. I'm not proud of it, but I am. No one should be. But I remember seeing a post go around that was a bunch of tears under a microscope photographed and they were talking about how different types of tears have different salt structures and that these pictures were of you know happy tears onion tears tears of grief and I was like that's really lovely and then I immediately forgot about it and didn't bother to question or critically think about it at all and when you said salt and I had no idea what to think of I was like is that true is it true and the answer is kind of yeah 
every time you cry onto a slide and you take a photo of it under a microscope, the structure of the tear is going to look different. But that's just because salt crystals form irregularly. Yeah, it's like a snowflake. This is a snowflake thing, right? Yeah. Hmm. So all of these, like the different tiers do have slightly different different chemical compositions. And so your basal reflex and emotional tiers have different levels of proteins. They have different um, sort of like different sort of makeups dependent on like hormonal responses and what's in your eye at the time. But none of that is actually going to affect the salt coming out of your eyes. There's no difference in structure. It's all the same. It's salty water. It just looks different. Yeah, it just looks cool. It's, it's just because basically like your body is different how much like salt content is in your body right now. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Are, you, are you particularly over-sodiumed? Are you dehydrated? That how salty are you at this moment in time? How salty are you? Depends on what's making me cry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a good whack and we'll have a look at your tear that forms under a microscope. Plus, I mean, it feels like kind of a given, but organic yeah. things do have to come about organically. Like yeah. it has to, like not, there's no like standard mold to it, I guess. So I get like as much as it seems huh. kind of um, silly uh, when you just hear it, like it, it does make sense. The woman who actually took those photographs did an interview with the Smithsonian Magazine and she has a quote where she says, there are so many variables. There's chemistry, the viscosity, the setting and the evaporation rate and the settings of the microscope. So basically that accounts for all the differences. She was taking these photos just because she thought they looked cool. It was more of an art thing than a science thing. And she basically said, look, there is no difference between these. I just think it's fun to say these are where I've collected these tears from Mm. and here's how they look. However... Tears have also got importance in like mythology and in Christianity for different reasons, regardless of their salt content or whether people thought happy tears were different to sad tears. So basically, according to early Christian authorities, the best type of tear were those shed by God um, or for God. Don't know about the things for uh, by God, but if you cried for God, that was, that was the best type of cry that you could have. That was like the most morally correct way to express yourself was to cry for God. Like out of love for God or j- it doesn't say? It doesn't really get into okay. it. Basically for any reason. Because bas- uh, it says here, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, the 12th century French abbot, felt he had to excuse his tears when his brother died because his tears suggested a lack of faith in God in heaven. So basically, if he was crying over his brother, who he should have believed was happy and fine with God in heaven, it was it was sort of a, a betrayal of his trust in heaven to think, oh, my brother's gone. He should have been happy, was the understanding. Hmm. And he actually gave a sermon to his fellow monks saying, please excuse my tears. He was like, I'm crying because I miss my brother, but like this has nothing to do with my belief in God. And it's interesting that his justification for that sounds to have come about not from him being like, well, I don't want anyone to think I don't believe in God. And more from him being like, well, I know I do believe in God, so mm. I must be crying for a different reason. Yeah, his um, they, they obviously don't really know what the sermon like was, but it seems like the general gist of it was he has to cry or he would feel bitter was was the wording described in this article that I read about it, where he was like, I have to cry. This has nothing to do with God. I'm so sorry. 
don't take this as a lack of faith. So like a very early understanding of like emotional catharsis yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. It was also thought that tears could wash away the stain of sins and priests were carefully taught how to provoke tears from people giving confession as proof that their guilt was real and that they deserved forgiveness. So if you went to confession and you confessed your sins and you didn't show proper proper sadness over this if you weren't crying with like genuine regret yeah you had to prove that you you regretted this and that you were going to make up for it and that you did understand what you'd done wrong and these priests were like okay let's work together we'll get you to cry we can do this that's beautiful Hmm. we're gonna make you cry whether you like it or not yeah (laughs) the gift of tears was also a religious phenomenon in the middle ages where a good christian might be overwhelmed with tears when thinking about christ's suffering on the cross (laughs) this gift allowed its recipient to feel closer to god and mark them out as special in this entire episode that's the first time we've spiked that's (laughs) the funniest thing i've ever heard in the middle ages yeah so basically like you went to church and they were giving like sermons they were talking about god and you were so moved for christ's suffering that you cried tears of of like empathy it was was supposed to be a gift for you to be able to understand this sacrifice in such a way that moved you to tears that's a minimum of 1150 years after the man died (laughs) yeah yeah but this was also like quite a, a controversial thing because you would get in a lot of trouble if they thought that your tears were fake. If you were caught crying in church and they were and you were like, oh, I guess I just have the gift of, of tears. I guess I'm just like marked by God because I really get the sacrifice. If they were like, you do that too often, your tears aren't real. Oh, you're not really crying. You'd get in trouble for being like- or a fake fan. Yeah, for being like fake, for not being truthful, for lying to God about your- dedication and your devotion so that apparently there was a woman who was like constantly crying she was just always crying and people got really mad at her and they started really doubting whether or not she actually you know was blessed by god with this with this emotional overwhelming need to cry Everyone's taking selfies. Sorry, I realised that we like we have a guest, which is the perfect time to actually take photos yeah, for the socials, because um, uh, we haven't posted on them for fucking forever. Um, Apart from Lachlan doing that, doing so yesterday. Yeah, for yes. Yeah, Tully sent me a picture for my birthday of me recording, and I keep meaning to put it on like my mm. social stuff and be like, "Hey, you know, you guys do a podcast." Because every time I talk about it, all my friends are like, "Since when?" <laughs> but yeah, basically. Crying was good if you're doing it for the right reasons, which was guilt or empathy for Jesus Christ himself. And that's it. And Tumblr lies to you. Double check all the sources, please, I beg of you. Otherwise, you'll be an idiot like me, a little idiot like me that thought different tears were different. I would love it if we kept that attitude of like to be a real fan, you have to, <laughs> you have you to have cry for shed it. Shed literal it tears. Like, in a, it, but it ha- like the, the things you have to do, or even. Uh, look, I'm happy for it to be like name their albums, <laughs> but I just love the idea that there is an upper and a lower acceptable limit. Like, oh, you're a real fan of the Beatles? Name three of their albums, but not five, because then I know you looked it up. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's actually that's actually a really good way of like kind of an analog for like how a lot of Christianity was in a lot of yeah. older history, because like there was a lot of like if you if you're too into this, we're gonna suspect that you're like. It was the idea of like 
exactly that that you know oh you looked it up and like you're pretending because you you're clearly trying too hard yeah uh, well i mean when you're not teaching anyone latin and you're only giving latin bibles to like the six priests that you like fucking does anyone showing up at your church and being like oh i know as much about religion as the priests do is like fucking from who who did you kill and steal a book from do you know how much time we spend on those <laughs> i wrote that myself this is a little post middle ages but i don't know how common knowledge this is, but before Van Gogh was an artist, he was um, he was like highly into religious, and he wanted to be a priest, and he wanted to like do sermons and stuff. And he actually his family set him up like in an area to do sermons for them and to do like religious teachings. And he was really unpopular because he was so by the book. He was so into God and Jesus. He was like, "Hey, you guys aren't you guys aren't actually doing it." wait, the Bible told you to do this and you're not actually doing it. Have you considered doing it? And they said, go away. We don't want to. <laughs> and who, sorry, who was this? Van Gogh. Yeah. And then he got depressed and became an artist. So I actually think he was depressed beforehand. I actually know five people in person whose backstory is exactly that. Yeah, yeah. Just too much of a knock for the church. Like, God, and then they got depressed and became artists. We don't yeah. want to hang out with That's you. That's how it is. If you don't have like a little bit of religious issues in your background, they don't actually let you into art school. Oh, there you go. Hmm. That's fun. Yeah. And sorry, to, we're gonna. I don't know when this is gonna be edited in, but we're gonna cut off the episode here because we had too much, too much, bloody. Whoa, we, we bloody had too much too goddamn much. fun. I know we had. Just, we got so carried away with the time and everything. Uh, it's like very. Very good stuff. It's going to be a fucking nightmare to edit. But you have officially reached the end of the first half of this two-parter episode. You know what the good news is, Lachlan? Yes. It's not my job to edit it. No. 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 You get to wash your hands of this. Dibs not. Dibs not. Fucking dibs. Jesus. I was like, oh, God damn it. Fuck. I'll do notes for you. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) I'll just message you while you do with, like, what a good time I'm having... Yeah, I'll, not not editing. I'll deliberately all of this would... let you know when I'm editing, so that Thanks. you can brag about the good time that you're having not editing mm-hmm. this. Okay, well, I mean, I wasn't going to say because I didn't want to have a whole conversation about how we should edit this podcast on the air. But <laughs> if we're talking about it, I think realistically, Grace should edit because she hasn't edited an episode yet. That's not. I did. Have you? Yes. What did you edit? I did. Fuck. It was one that we were doing while in isolation because I remember there was issues where we recorded it on my laptop and I had to sit at my ha- at my one. desk at home and with my mum looking over my oh, shoulder. Oh, but that was saying, a character episode. Doing? That doesn't count. That ha- was short and you didn't have to cut anything out. I hate to shoehorn myself onto a podcast, but I do actually have a degree in video and sound editing. Yeah, look. Well, Grace has also been trained in sound editing, which is why I brought it up. Grace has edited the least episodes of this podcast yeah. and is the person of the podcast that is the only one that is qualified to edit it. Yeah, I'm the one that regularly edits and uh, my qualifications are has audacity. Yeah. <laughs> and I got is willing to do it when I'm not. And yeah, can yeah. stay up late to do it. <sighs> Fine, the peer pressure, it's got me. I'll do this episode. I'll Fucking do it nice. because I love you. Treat me nice, Grace. I'll I'll treat you nice. Aww. You didn't peer pressure me. That's all that matters. <laughs> well, l- look at it this way. You can be roasted about having not edited many episodes of the podcast, even though you're the only qualified editor on the air. You can leave that can just be left in, or you could edit the podcast and take out whatever the fuck you wanted. Is all I'm saying. Yeah, and just just have you deliberately going. It's okay, guys. I'll edit this one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll make myself look really good, and I'll cut out like individual words, and I'll string it together. So it's like, thank you, Grace. We love you. 
Yeah, and exactly. then that's how the like, episode ends. This episode gets cut down to like twenty minutes, and it's just Grace's bit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's two episodes, five minutes each. Yeah. Episode <laughs> one, yeah. episode one, salt. Episode two, tears. Well, that's <laughs> it. While everybody else is talking, I don't even like cut it down to just what I'm saying. It just goes silent when other people talk. <laughs> yeah, it's still the full length, but there's almost it's just no the, audio. It's the theme song the whole time. Yeah, my well, one of my assessments to this audio editing class was you had to like get this audio and make it sound like it was. Um, recorded in different locations just using the effects. Mm. So this entire episode has been filmed in a sewer. Wait, this Ooh. entire episode has been has been recorded at the Dead Sea. Yeah, Niagara <laughs> Falls. And if you find those live leak videos, you can see for sure. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much for catching us this week on Dungeon Deep Dive. You can catch the continuation of this episode next week if you'd like to get in contact. But between those times, feel free to catch us on the socials at Dungeon Deep Dive on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or email us at t- uh, Deep dive tnc at gmail.com and bloody with that i've been lachlan this has been tully yep this has been grace Mm -hmm. and this has been a maddie hello well goodbye i guess i don't know why i did it like that i just thought it'd be fun if i did it no it was it It was good i I gestured at everyone you can tell if you look at the life like rule of threes baby (laughs) got him got him Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.